Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. I hope you guys had a great uh, Thanksgiving, a kind of a Thanksgiving weekend. I, I, I've always looked at Thanksgiving like, if you listen to the uh, holiday special, Thanksgiving started out as a like a weekend thing. It started on Thursday and ran through until you know, Sunday, and then you went to church and came home and... That was the original, you know, the original Thanksgiving was like that. That whole weekend was was about Thanksgiving. And, and that's how it's always been for us here in my household. And I hope you were able to at least have a little bit of that in your life because it's, it's good to have those pauses. And, you know, we'll get another chance coming up here for a pause around Christmas as well, New Year, through New Year's. But uh, today is a Monday. We're back at it, and it is time for a listener feedback show. I've got a, a pretty good lineup for you today. We're going to talk about... The Zello uh, group and why you might want to consider using Zello even if you're not on the TSP Zello channel as a matter of course. Uh, just why you might want to use it as a tool. And what exactly is a Zello? And we have a shout out for a member of our Zello crew uh, as well. Uh, we have a story about doomsday preppers getting robbed and they don't even really know what kind of guns they own. I'll play an audio of that. It's It's very clear that the reason this got a, a, a big-time news story is because it makes people like us look stupid because the people that it's about are stupid. Uh, I'll, I'll let them speak for themselves and prove that to you here in a bit. Uh, I have a question. Can you make money with just a blog? You know, people looking at what I'm doing and going, well, you're running a blog, but you do a podcast and a YouTube channel and a forum and a Facebook group and on and on. Well, what if I can't do all that? Uh, well, we'll talk about can you make money with just a blog and – a bigger lesson uh, to the whole thing as well. I have uh, thoughts on what's called the Sweat Pledge. Sweat Pledge, yes, that's from Mike Rowe, who's a guy I really dig. I have a question on the alt-right. Uh, how do we deal with them at all? And frankly, why I really just don't care, and you shouldn't either, and it's not the big story that it's made out to be. And then we'll finish up with some new news about GMO crops. Yeah, GMO crops. I know some of you think, well, they're really not dangerous, Jack. Okay, fine. Well, how about they just don't dadgone work? Yep, we have new information out about that. And then I have a pretty cool song to close the day with. Before we get to all that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1905 because the episode is 1905. Alex has two for us today at tspwiki.com, the survival and self-sufficiency wiki. At the end at tspwiki.com. Uh, we have 
Albert Einstein's Miracle Year. We have Bloody Sunday, Sunday and the Rise of Socialism. And notable births. Donald Trump's father is born this year, Fred Trump, born in Queens to German immigrants. Anne Rand, the author of Atlas Shrugged, is born in St. Petersburg this year. Pat Brown, governor of California and the father of Jerry Brown, who was also governor of California, all born this year. Las Vegas is founded. The 110 acres purchased this year will become the downtown area. Marta Hari dances her way to fame. Apparently fame does not require much clothing. In 12 more years, she'll be shot for spying for Germany. And SCOTUS finds the 60-hour work week to be unconstitutional. Laws limiting the work week to 60 hours violate the rights of freedom of contract. I think all of the labor laws violate the rights to freedom of contract. I really do. I know, oh, but Jack, people would be worked into the ground and everybody would be... No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. No, they would not. Um, I think that I should be able to sell my labor for any amount of money I want, as much or as little as I want, under any circumstances, with any person, as long as we're not harming anybody else. Uh, that would be called freedom. And anything less is not freedom. And even if you say, well, certain people will, it doesn't matter. It's not freedom. It's just not freedom. Anyway, the one I'm going to read out of the two, and this was a tough decision for me, is Albert Einstein's Miracle Year. And it really was a tough decision to make between this and Bloody Sunday because it's such a critical thing that really gets overlooked. So I suggest you look up the year 1905 and read that one for yourself. So here we go. Albert Einstein's Miracle Year. Albert Einstein's theory this year will make possible GPS devices, night vision goggles, and the atomic bomb. These inventions won't be realized this year, but the theories behind these inventions are presented in what will be called Einstein's Miracle Year. He points that light is made up of photons, and when they hit metal, an electric charge is produced. Someone will realize that infrared photons can produce a photoelectric effect, and the resulting electric charge can be projected onto your night goggles. Next, Einstein's equation E equals mc squared. E equals mc squared means that matter can be turned into energy. According to the movie Back to the Future, you can throw your garbage into your Mr. Fusion and generate enough energy to power your time machine, but that won't happen until 2015. I think I missed it. During World War II, Einstein will suggest that a chain reaction of heavy elements can release a frightening amount of energy from matter. Thus, the Manhattan Project will be born. And finally, the theory of relativity will help in the use of a GPS device. A GPS device measures signal bounce between satellites to within 20 or 30 nanoseconds. However, relativity informs us that we experience time at different rates relative to each other, depending on how fast we are traveling. When you fly in a jet, you can measure the time difference with an atomic clock, so it's real. It is enough of a difference that it interferes with GPS time measurement. Relativity explains the problem, whereas classical theories do not. My take by Alex Shrugged. FYI, Einstein made a big mistake. His equation suggested the universe is expanding, so he added a cosmological constant to keep the universe static. A few years later, Edwin Hubble proved it was expanding. Also, as quantum mechanics changed from mathematical trick into something describing the real universe, Einstein struggled with fellow physicists over how insane the universe was looking like. For example, most people believe the universe is deterministic, meaning when you hit a ball, the ball moves. This is cause and effect. Unfortunately, at times, the universe is non-deterministic, a good example of a non-determinic universe is the movie Arrival, 2016, starring Amy Adams. Begin spoiler alert. In the first contact with the aliens from space, a language specialist is told the aliens will visit Earth in 3,000 years, which is in the future, isn't it? So how could they know? 
And spoiler alert, Einstein was great with public and when with children. Uh, when children would knock on his door, he would answer their questions graciously. However, he seemed to live best when he lived alone. He would forget to wear socks. Um, my kind of reason for picking this is I think a lot of people are aware of Albert Einstein and the genius that the man was, but I, I don't think really people realize that it was this long ago in history, 1905. We think in 1905 of people still being quite primitive with technology, but this is the genesis of so many things, including more things than Alex mentioned, and it is one of the great turning points in human history. And like many things, as we discussed about the Wright brothers in the airplane and how the airplane does so much, but yet you know, killed so many people by dropping bombs on them, This is one of those things, whenever you have these, these monumentous things in history, they get used for both good and evil. And it is up to us to be good stewards and to try to you know push those more toward good than evil. You sure can irradiate a hell of a lot of people with this knowledge. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's go ahead and get into the, uh, the first, uh, first uh, story for the day. So we're going to start out with... Uh, We'll talk about the Zello crew uh, and what, what Zello is for those of you who have not um, been on Zello or, or been part of the Zello team or, or what have you, uh, or I just haven't used Zello at all. And, and, and so what is it? So Zello is an app that you can put on your smartphone. You can put it on your computer as well, as long as your computer has speakers and microphones. And it allows you to basically create what would be an analog to a radio network. Uh, not a radio network like live from Los Angeles, broadcasting at 50,000 watts. Not like kind of radio network, like, like a ham radio network. It's not a ham radio network, okay? Like a ham radio network. But unlike that type of a network where you have certain airwaves that you're transmitting over that anybody with a license to use them anyway can get on there and hear and talk and be involved. You can create public or private, call them audio groups. Think of it like Facebook now, right? Where you can, you can be involved with each other. You can be as moderated or as loose as you want with your group. Um, and what this does is it creates a push-to-talk application. If you remember the days of Nextel radios, Um, when you, you know, you'd have your phone, you'd pick your phone up and your phone was also a radio and you could skip signal across the towers within your network and your group. And for me, it'd be something like, I need all foremen to report in your, your footage for today when I was in underground. Right. And then they would come in one at a time and each would hear and you'd be like, yeah, Kevin, I still haven't heard from you. If you don't want to be fired today, I need your footage reported. Right. Uh, it, it was that kind of a thing. Well, you could do that with this. Right. So you could use it for a business application. And I guess that's how they monetize it for people that want to use it as a business application. Well, uh, quite a few years ago, now five or six years ago now, I, I heard from somebody about this thing and I checked it out and I said, you know what? This seems like something that we should have. For the TSP community. So I set up the TSP Zello group and uh, I helped get it off the ground and like I do with many things and keep thinking about that because it's going to come back the way that I handled this and the way that I've handled many things. Once it kind of grew up, I backed out of it. Now I still occasionally check in on Zello, hang out with those guys and talk to them and all. But I let it be what it is, and I let the people that st – it's a meritocracy. There's a group of moderators that have stepped up, and they moderate it. They decide if someone's breaking the rules, and they throw them out. They don't allow adult language on that channel because some of them let their kids listen. Now, you know me. 
I say adult words occasionally on the show, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, sometimes none. But I would have never made that decision. They made that decision. I stayed out of it and let them do it. And it is just this really great group of people that talk about the show. They talk about self-sufficiency and self-reliance. They help each other. I've seen situations where a person was traveling, especially like, let's say, a female alone over a long distance, and they would uh, uh, use that with like an app like Glimpse, and like people would just keep an eye on them while they were, you know, in route, making sure they got where they were supposed to and checking in with them and things like that. Uh, so it's just really become this incredible support network. But let's say you're like, well, Jack, I don't really care. Well, what about setting up a channel for your family? And then. Dad gets on the phone and cheap, cheap, and that's what the sound makes like when you hold it down and says, hey, blah, 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 and everybody gets the message immediately. You don't have to call anybody. Is it as reliable as ham radio? No. Is it reliable? It's damn reliable. It's as reliable as a cell phone. Um, I even used it when I was in Arkansas from my laptop computer across our satellite uh, internet, and it worked Rather well. No one had a problem understanding what I was saying, and I didn't have a problem hearing and understanding everybody else. I'm sure there was a latency, but since it's like a push-to-talk application, you don't really notice it. So it's kind of cool. I will tell you, like, the first time you get on there, you may feel like it's a click. Because it's just a group that's been around for a long time, and there could be five people on, or there could be 50 people on. And sometimes somebody here and there will tend to dominate the microphone. And if any of you guys out there listen to me, I want to tell you, You guys got, you do guys should watch that a little bit. When you have one person that's doing 50% of the talking for an hour, it's too much. You should back off. Maybe a little side message or something. Hey, you're being a little dominating. Cause I've even been on there. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> right? So I, I'm just saying that for people that might try the first time. If you get that experience, it might be just that was a moment that that happened. So, so go back and, and, and take some time and, and, and get involved with the group. Or set up your own group and use it. Now, on that note, I would like to tell you that the group does get very tight. And people do care about each other. And I wanted to let you guys know that there's a, uh, a guy on the, uh, on the channel that goes by the handle on the channel, Tactical Redneck. And uh, he's going to be shipping out to Gitmo soon uh, for, for service. And we wanted to kind of point that out. And uh, ask folks out there to maybe thank him for his service and, and let them know that we'll miss him. And uh, he's a really good guy. I know more, but I won't really talk about it here. Uh, I'll just say that it's a it's an interesting situation, and I am uh, I'm proud of him and his decisions and what he's actually doing this for. Um, so, uh, tactical redneck, thank you for your service and everyone else. Please consider giving Zello a shot. And you microphone hogs on the uh, Zello channel, you know who you are. And if you don't, I would suggest that maybe someone nicely tell you who you are every once in a while. Stop pushing the button for a while. Let other people talk. Um, just had to say that. Anyway, uh, next up, I have something for you. Uh, Self-described doomsday preppers get robbed while they sleep. Um, I'm going to play the news clip for you. This makes your brain hurt. It makes your brain hurt, especially when you hear this lady describing the guns that were stolen. You just, really? You're the 3%? Really? Ugh. 
Anyway, if you wanted to make preppers look bad, these would be the people you'd do it with. I'll come back with my thoughts and why this actually is a lesson for all of us as well. It's got, like, essentials that you'd need should you get hurt, cut, whatever. Normal first aid kit. Tina Brand and her husband say they are ready for Armageddon. Smoke grenades. It's in case you're out, out in the field and nobody can see where you are. You can set them off and it'll help them find you quicker the brands are part of a militia group known as the three percents this is a water carrying pouch for your filtration system should the water be contaminated and you need to drink it they consider it their duty to oppose any effort by the government to intrude on their personal liberties this is our fire starting stuff okay we're prepped for like starting any kind of fire char cloth Our strikers. And they are preparing for doomsday. Should we be invaded by another country and not able to go get food, or should something happen to right where our food supply chain or our community would come into any type of harm's way, we have a way to supply for ourselves and the community around us. We think it's through this door right here. The brands who recently moved to Cleveland from New York say early Tuesday morning while they were asleep, burglars snuck into their home off of St. Clair Avenue and cleaned out two of their gun cases. They got away with a bag of machetes, ammunition, food rations, and a small arsenal of firearms. These guys are prepared for war now. They have seven guns. Seven. We're talking about 12 gauges, 305s, 357. One looks like a sniper rifle that can go through armor. The family moved into the South Collinwood neighborhood back on October 28th. And they believe it was then that the thieves saw them carrying the guns into the house and decided that day that they would come back and steal them. We test them out, we practice with them, we get to know how to use them. The burglars also took some body armor, and the brands are now worried that as a result of their doomsday preparations, they have put others in danger. Our military personnel, especially, and our police officers, because they wear bulletproof vests. We have a gun out there that can pierce them. And go through cars. All you got to do is just aim it. They took all of our ammo. With the ammunition that they've got, they're good for a good year with that ammunition. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about this lunacy first. She's crying because our lawmen and, and our servicemen that are out there, they could be. Oh, first of all, these are people that are in a militia that I'm not saying militias are all this way at all. I'm, I'm actually a big fan of the concept of militias. I'd like to see more of them, but these people seem to be coming from a standpoint of those are the dangerous people, right? But they, they could be shot with a, a gun that, that has the power to pierce a bulletproof vest. This almost sounds fake to me, guys. This almost sounds like a hit, except that it's only on a local, uh, uh, TV station. It wasn't done nationally. It was done nationally. I think this was a hit piece. It's so ridiculous. It could, it could penetrate bulletproof vests. Every deer rifle on planet Earth can penetrate bulletproof vests. Unless you're, you're, you're wearing, you know, trauma plates, right? Heavy plated armor. Uh, you you, any, any centerfire rifle is going to go right through your standard bulletproof vest. Like your, you know, your 223, right? I mean, it's just preposterous that this, and then the one rifles looks like a sniper rifle. Oh, it looks like a sniper rifle. Holy shit. You know, what do you mean? It has a scope on it? It's a 305. A 305? What the hell are you talking about? A 305? Now look, I don't expect everybody to be a gun expert, 
But if you're part of a militia that calls itself the 3%, and you self-describe yourself as doomsday preppers, and you think you're ready for the apocalypse, and you have seven guns stored, and you don't know what the hell you have, you, 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 you look pretty stupid. Now, what I thought was, well, Jack, maybe you're being too hard on this lady. Maybe she's sharp, you know, sharper than you think. And maybe she, when she said it was a 305, she wasn't referring to caliber. Maybe there's a model 305 rifle out there that's some kind of... So I, I looked it up. The only 305 rifle I can find is a Savage Stevens 305, which is a 22 Magnum. So I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, that that's not what this moron was talking about. And just this whole presentation, again, it almost seems like a hit piece, except they are among us and there are preppers that are this dim-witted and dumb. First of all, if you were a prepper and you're this worried about the end of the world and the apocalypse and part of the 3% militia and all this other shit, and you were stupid enough to get all your shit stolen from you, why would you call the news and agree to do this? I mean, I think these are this is what we have to understand. When we come as preppers under the microscope of the public as being loons, among us, as among any group, remember... Spirico's 10% theory. Spirico's 10% theory is 10% of people are scumbags. And that 10% is a constant through society. So it's, it's not just 10% of people in general. If you get a big enough group, now if you have three, there might be zero, right? But if you get enough priests in one room together, 10% of them are scumbags. School teachers, 10% of them are scumbags. Lawyers, 10% of them are scumbags. When I say scumbag, I don't just mean not nice people. I mean absolute douchebag scumbag people. People that the only thing preventing them from harming people and stealing from people, killing people, hurting people, is fear of reprisal. That if they believed that they would get away with it, they would do horrible things. 10% of people are that way. Okay, I also have... Spirico's 2% theory. 2% of people are effing crazy. They're nuts. Now, they might not be people that would do you harm, but there, some of them, there's some overlap. There's some crazy people in the 10%, right? But in general, if you get a 1,000 people together, 20 of them are flipping nuts. Well, there's more than a 1,000 preppers out there, and these loons are among us. Now, if you're in the media... What are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on the people that are level-headed, that are, you know, doing the right things that make sense, that, you know, even though the government maligns us, if you go to ready.gov, you'll see that most of the things we do are things that they say to do at ready.gov? No. No, no, no. That's not interesting. That's not interesting. You want the extreme. You want the nut job. So you're going to focus on this. So when the news gets this call, it's like, oh, man, this is great. And this is almost like an anti-gun piece, because now they're ready for war because they have seven guns. Well, I have a shitload more than seven guns, and I'm not ready for war. I mean, these people are mentally defective. But we can learn something from them. We can learn something from them. First of all, if you're moving into your house, and you have a shitload of guns, you move the guns in during a time when they're not visible. You figure out a way to make them not visible. You don't bring them in multiple cases that look like gun cases. If you're smart and you live in a, you're moving to a house and that house has a garage in it, the smart thing to do would be you, you put your guns in a vehicle, you pull the vehicle into the garage, you close the door and you unload them. 
You just don't make it visible that you have certain things to people that are driving by or around your house, casing your house. You just don't do it. That's, that's one thing. And that would be the same with any high-value item. Let me tell you what you should do. If you buy a brand-new, big-screen, 70-inch TV for Christmas, cut the box up in little pieces and put it in a bag or burn it. Don't set the empty box out on the trash pickup overnight while every scumbag in your town drives by and goes, Ooh, ooh, look at that. Look at that, right? Okay, another thing is, do you know what to stop this? A dog. A dog. Well, better security for the guns, putting the firearms in a place that were less accessible, uh, things like that, being armed yourself, ready to respond. All those But the, the linchpin at all could have been a dog. I mean like a little-ass yappy lopsa-lopsa-opsa-lopsa-dog or a, a Yorkshire Terrier or a Chihuahua or, or a big giant Max dog that'll bite your arm off. All of those will work. But a dog, a simple preparedness item, a dog, a well-trained dog that when somebody starts trying to get into the house, goes apeshit and starts barking and is likely, not always, but likely that just that alone makes them leave because, well... My ability to do this and not get caught has just gone down by a great deal. Now I know that that person in there that owns guns might shoot me. Now, where the hell do you store your guns, by the way, that a person can break into your house while you sleep and get them and leave the house and you don't even know what happened until the next day? I guess if you're a sound enough sleeper, it could be under your bed, but... It just seems to me like they were stored in like a closet out of the front of the house or something, like in the coat closet or some stupid shit like that. I don't. And who the hell carries around a bag full of machetes? I mean, what kind of freaking moron has a bag of machetes? This has just got stupid written all over it. It doesn't even sound real. It sounds like something that should be on the freaking onion. But this is what I want you to remember. It is real. Jack Spierko's 10% theory has got to be complemented by Jack Spierko's 2% theory. 2% of people are effing crazy. They're nuts. They're delusional. Now listen, that 2% is also a constant. It's in all walks of life. Some people are better at covering their crazy than others. And then some people find an outlet for their crazy. Where they think it's okay to display they're crazy because they think everybody that's part of that group is crazy too. Preppers are one of those groups that attracts the crazies. And you need to understand that because when you talk to your friends or your family or your neighbors about preparedness and they start looking at you like a tree's growing out of your head and a lizard is living on you, on the tree, The reason they're doing that is their only exposure to preparedness or preppers or survivalists has been the crazies. And that's because the crazies are the ones they put on the TV set. Now, they'll make a, a, a whole series of a couple guys running around the woods trying to survive, and that's okay because they're lost in the woods. But as soon as you start being prepared for something to go wrong in your own house, you're nuts. Because you're lumped in with the other nut jobs, and it's not entertaining news. It doesn't give ratings to put sane, rational people on TV. Now, what's funny is, once in a while, once in a while, they'll talk about storm preparedness, 
they'll roll out some expert that generally is a one-off hack author that doesn't know shit to tell you how to put together a kit to be ready in your house. But you're still crazy if you do it. And this is the message of the media. It's a push-pull. It's a way that you actually seduce the population into believing all of your bullshit. You tell people they're crazy and then tell them to do what makes them crazy, but only as much as you say so. It's like it's like a pickup line where you compliment a girl in a bar while giving her a slight insult at the same time. Like your hair looks really good in spite of the fact that it's a little bit oily. Not that I would do something like that. I certainly wouldn't. I'm not being uh, sarcastic. Right? I would, and I can't come up with a good one, but I know there's good ones out there, right? That people do shit like this, right? I've I've seen it talked about and and what have you on TV and all. So that's what the media is doing to you constantly. They're doing these push pulls. They're insulting the group and then saying, "Well, but there's this wonderful part of this," and it's back and forth, and it's all designed. It's all designed as programming to keep you from paying attention to the shit in your life that really matters. And they'll come on TV and they'll tell you that, well, you should be prepared for a storm, and then next week they'll put these people on and say, look, doomsday preppers, they're crazy. Their three oh five rifle can shoot through a bulletproof vest. How'd they ever get this? Well, it's probably a three oh eight rifle, and all three oh eight rifles, the Billions of them that are out there are capable of, 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 of penetrating, you know, the basic level of, of, of bulletproof vests that the average law enforcement officer wears. <sighs> Let's do something else. I, I, I can't talk about these people anymore. It, it, it does hurt my head. But just remember, they're out there. They do walk among us, and they call themselves preppers. And to be fair, they are preppers. They're not not preppers. They're preppers like we are. They're just, they're the crazy preppers. We don't want to be part of them. So I have another uh, email here from someone, and uh, it's it's an interesting question because the, the, the first question is like, well, duh, there's a lot of people doing it, so it must be yes. It starts out with, is making money by writing a blog possible? I think so. Okay. Uh, then it says, because of health issues, I have to dial back on what I can do physically. I have been reading pins about making money from blogs, tweets, and other social media. I wonder if that's pins as in Pinterest or it's a mistype. I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. Some of these people are selling merchandise, others are not. I'm a professional who provides service to my client. I come to TSP and I see a guy named Jack hustling his ass off on a site that has forums, links, videos, podcasts, and much more. Being someone without even a Facebook account, there's no way I could follow his business model and be on a one-stop site. Is there any money to be made by blogging about one's knowledge and redirecting readers to products through links, etc.? Thanks for your time and input. Uh, great site. I love that someone is doing stuff like this. Okay, so this comes from Chris. So the, the straight answer is yes. There's a lot of blogs out there that are quite successful that sell advertising, that do referral marketing, that do affiliate marketing, uh, some that even do membership sites that are just blogs, and all they do is write. Okay. Um, however, in our day and age, the more you do, the more funnels you create, the more 
people end up at the heart of your system, whatever your system is. So if all you do is blog, and it's very, very one-dimensional, um, and your only real marketing outreach is then going to be search engine marketing, which is actually getting less and less valuable over the years. When I started Internet marketing all the way back about 2000, Uh, if you could make a search engine list your site, you were God. Now, there wasn't a lot of money to be made yet. People were still figuring out the monetization thing, but you could certainly drive traffic. And that remained true all the way through 2005, 10, 2012-ish. But today, more traffic is being driven by social media combined than search combined as far as responsive traffic unless the searcher knows exactly what they're looking for. So when you take out things like Hilton Hotel San Diego, because a person is going to San Diego and knows they want a Hilton Hotel, and you, you take those types of searches out and you look at people that are just trying to find something, you have like the shopping engines like Trivago and all that have a segment of it, but people more and more are getting information by saying, in a Facebook group, hey, I'm going to San Diego. Does anybody know the best place to stay? Or I'm looking for information about how to, I don't know, justify my TPS reports because it doesn't matter, and, and, and finding information like that, or finding information through uh, Pinterest uh, or Instagram. Uh, I, think, I believe Pinterest drove more traffic to individual sites, if we take out the big corporate sites, in 2015 uh, than, than, than search traffic, if I, if I remember reading that. It might have been more, you know what, it wasn't more than search. It was more than YouTube and Facebook combined. That's what it was. And Facebook drives a lot of traffic. So what I'm saying is you can just do a blog, but these things like, I don't have a Facebook account. Well, in five minutes you can. I don't know how to use it. Well, five million kids use it every, five billion kids use it every day, right? So you can figure it out. It's not hard. Well, I don't know how to, then you go to YouTube and you type in, how do I fill in the blank? Boom. And so 14, okay, we'll show you how to do it. And you don't make excuses about, I don't know, I can't, I don't know how. That's bullshit. If you're going to do that, don't bother. Because you're not going to be successful. Because even just blogging, you're going to be like, well, I don't know how to insert a picture. I don't know what blog platform to use. I don't know how to integrate a mailing list. And all this shit takes time, but it only takes time once. Let me explain something about my flow, my daily workflow. So I get up in the morning, I go through a gazillion emails, I get that all done. That's something I have to do. I have to service you guys, my customers. When I get that done, my next focus is going, now this is after taking care of the animals and stuff outside, just so you understand this is not all I do in a day, but this is all I, this is for the work part. So once that's done, in fact, what I usually do, I get up first thing in the morning, I come here and knock out my emails. I make a cup of tea. Knock out my emails, I go out and take care of the animals. I come back in, I do the Amazon item of the day. As soon as that's done, I roll right into getting the show prep for the day. A lot of times some of that prep work's already been done, depending on what kind of show it is. And I set up my outline, and I turn on the recorder, and I do my show. Okay. And then when I'm done doing my show, I edit it, and I produce it. That takes the least amount of time of anything I do. Not the recording, but the editing and production. People think I spend a lot of time editing and producing. I have a template. It took a long time to set it up the first time, but now when I'm done recording, I drop it in, I do a few edits, and I hit render, and out it comes. 
right? I actually render it as a WAV, this is technical, and put it through a thing called Levelator that levels the sound, and then I render it back as an MP3 and upload it. That sounds complicated. It's not. And once you learn how to do it, you can do it just like waiting for the computer to finish takes longer than anything that I do. Once it's done, I attach it to a blog post and I hit publish. Then you get an email that says, if you're on my email list, hey, I got this new thing and here's what it is and you can come see it. I don't do shit to make that happen. The blog has an RSS feed. If the person that asked this question or anybody else that wants a business is going, oh, this is all complicated, you're going to fail if you don't listen. You're going to fail if you're not willing to learn how to do this shit because it's not hard. Any belief that it's hard is a false belief. It's all simple. It just takes time. You're going to screw it up. You're going to struggle through it. But in a day, you can learn any one of these things. So if there's 10 of them in 10 days, everything's on autopilot. Quit making excuses. Okay? So the blog has a thing called an RSS feed. That's called really simple syndication. My email program over at Aweber just goes, oh, there's a new thing in the feed. Bam, spits out an email. Okay? There's a little button. It says tweet on the post. I click tweet. It comes up. It has the title and a link in the tweet. I change it so it's a little more interesting. And then I copy it. And then I tweet it. Why? Because now I'm going to put it on Facebook. Now I'm going to put it on Facebook. So... Twitter, I can only have like 140 characters, 140 characters. So I try to make it as descriptive as I can. I copy it. I go to my Facebook page. I go, Control-V. That's paste. If you don't know that, look it up. And I look at it and go, is that enough interesting? Or I can use more words here. So I make it a little bit more interesting. And then I copy it again. And I hit post. And I post it to my Facebook page. And then I share it to my main, you know, my personal account. And the TSP group page. That all takes, all of that, from Twitter to that, two minutes at the most, if I'm thinking about the little description that I'm putting in there. All right? I'm done. It's on Facebook. It's on Twitter. It's everywhere. If I do a YouTube video, I upload it to YouTube, and I post it on the blog, and I share it to Facebook and Twitter. Same process. Everything is automated. And that's how I'm able to get so much done. Now, this, well, you've got all of these things, like a forum. I don't do jack for the forum. It was about three months into this thing. This is eight years ago. People came to me and said, you need a forum. We want a forum. Give us a forum. I set up a forum, just like I talked about with Zello earlier. I got it going. I attracted some, some moderators. Eventually, I got a few people to act as admins. They were serious about it. They cared about it. They were committed to it. I said, it's yours. You want to put advertising on it? Keep the money. Really? Yep. Go ahead. You want to figure out a way to monetize it that includes moderators, whatever? You guys figure it out. It's it's all you. And they hemmed and hawed around for a while until they eventually did put them on. Now, why would I do that? Well, because I have two really great admins that are way smarter than me about computer shit that help me when something goes wrong. Because if my site's down, their forum's down, which is a source of revenue for them. They're part of the team, but yet... Their thing is their thing. I don't control it at all. Now, what benefit is it to me, beyond having the support of these two really great technical guys, to have a forum out there with hundreds of thousands of posts on it? Well, people do still use Google, right? And tons of people every day end up on that forum researching information going, what is the survival podcast? It is part of the funnel that leads to my heart, which is my podcast. 
And there's there's so much of that. There's the TSP Facebook forum. Guy wanted to set up, go ahead. They run it. I don't I don't have control over it. The Regen Ag Group, I set that up. That's a little less direct of a funnel into me, but it still brings people in all the time. It's about leveraging technology. So can you do it with just a blog? Yes, you don't have to have a podcast on your blog. But I'm telling you, success comes from reaching people wherever they are. And when I hear people like, well, I, I don't, I, I want to do this and that, but I, I don't want to use Facebook. Well, it's like the fourth most popular website or fifth most popular website online today. All right. So it's like kind of important. What I see in my head is I go back to, you know, the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, maybe, you know, 1915, 1920, when phones were just starting to really get popular. People were starting to have phones and, and what have you. And wh how it worked up until then, like, let's say you want to buy something from ABC Company. ABC Company sold Widget A. And you had a question about Widget A. You wrote a letter, to, a letter, like a, in a, you put an envelope with a stamp, and you sent them a letter. And someone there would get the letter and write you an answer to your question and mail it back to you. And then you're like, oh, okay. And then you would buy it. People did shit like this. So I see a guy, we'll call him Mr. Thompson, right? He's sitting at his desk. And, and, his, and his secretary, Hazel, says, Mr. Thompson, there's a customer on a phone we just got for you. They have a question about widget A. And, and Mr. Thompson says, Hazel, you tell him to write me a letter. I don't want to use that phone. When you say you don't want to use social media, what, what have you, that's what you're saying. I don't want to use the communication that my, my market wants to use. And that's insane. So you have to integrate these things, but it doesn't have to be complicated. Can you make money with just a blog? Brian Black with ITS Tacticals Company is bigger than TSP today. He started the year after than me. In the end, it's just a blog. He does have a YouTube channel. They do do a podcast. The podcast has nothing to do with ITS Tactical. It's called Ridiculous Dialogue. It's a, it's Ridiculous Dialogue. His YouTube channel's done a lot for him, though. A ton. Now, does that mean you have to do it that way? No, but it does mean with just a blog, you can be infinitely successful. And you can also be completely a failure. Or you can be something in between. And most people that are serious about it will be something in between. But I'm going to tell you, No matter what tools you leverage as far as social media or YouTube or some of the, the, the picture stuff, like, again, Pinterest and Instagram, no matter what you do, the key to your success is consistency. If you're going to put out a post a week, well, you're probably going to go slow, but at least you better damn well put out a post a week. If you're going to do a post today, well, you better do a post today. My buddy Brian Black at ITS, that's exactly how he started out. At least one blog post every day when there was no one but him to help him, and he was still taking design clients as a web designer. One post a day, period. And they were written like magazine articles because he was that anal about it, and he was that concerned about it, and that's why he has the success, success that he does today. The more you put in, the more that you get out. The other thing is having some way that when someone comes to your site, they're compelled to be put on a list or set up some affinity with you, whether it's subscribe to your YouTube channel, follow you on Facebook, whatever. If you don't do that, you're not important enough for them to come back. I, I want you to think about this. Have you ever watched a TV show where it was like, uh, like a singing competition or just for some reason someone came out and sang a song and they were someone you'd never heard of before? And... They blew you away. 
you were legitimately blown away by how good they were. But a week later, you couldn't remember their name, and you didn't ever think about them again. And right now, you're thinking to yourself, well, there's been plenty of people like that over the years. I can't tell you what song they sang or who they are, but I know I've seen stuff like that. That's you as a blog or a YouTube channel or anything unless you get an action, an affinity-driving action. Because now, when you do something new, they're going to get touched again. Now, when they get touched, they may not respond. They might get touched 14, 15 times before they go, gee, I wonder what they're up to, and go back there. Here's an example. Great YouTube channel. You should check it out if you like kind of the backyard permaculture thing and backyard food production and stuff like that. It's called Rob Bob's Backyard Farming. He's an Aussie. Uh, big into uh, aquaponics and, and wicking beds and things like that. I love him. And he puts out several videos a week at least, close to one a day. I don't watch them all. Sometimes I go a couple weeks without watching one. But I get in my inbox uh, an alert from, you, from YouTube, Rob Bob has uploaded a video, and I think, ah. Oh. And sometimes I look at it and go, I'm not interested in that, but I like him. And the affinity remains, and it grows. And now, because he's good at getting people to subscribe, I'm sitting here on a microphone telling 150,000-plus people, go check out his channel. Now, what percentage of you are going to do that? Maybe five. Maybe five. But 5% of 150,000 is a shitload of people. What percentage of you are going to subscribe? Out of the 5% that go, maybe a little higher this time because I'm talking about it, but probably 10% of that. So you cut off a five and then you get a 10. If he wasn't good at getting the 10, he'd lose everything that he just got right now. This is how you have to think when you want to run a business. And the other way you have to think is if you want to go wide with exposure, with forums, with you know things like that, social media, you have to do something that corporate America is terrible at. It's why you as an individual entrepreneur, if you'll let your ego go, have an advantage. You can't control it. I don't control the forum. I don't control the Facebook group. I don't control the Zello channel. I don't control them. I don't want to. But I really appreciate that they're there. I'm glad they enjoy having that product, that service for their own use. I'm glad they enjoyed their ownership of it. I'm glad they enjoyed the affinity of it. And I'm grateful for every single person that gets ticked in the funnel and ends up listening to a podcast. And of that, a certain percentage will subscribe. They'll either subscribe in iTunes, because I'm in iTunes, because I need to be in iTunes, because it's the biggest audio market there is, or in Google Play. Now, it sounds complicated, but once you fill out the application you're accepted, you don't do anything anymore. It monitors your feed. This is how you have to, you have to find about what are all the ways within my arena that I can reach people and set up as much of an autom automation as pa uh, possible, and then become a maniac at content creation. And you got to be good. In the end, I had Gary Vaynerchuk on this show many years ago, and he said, in the end, Jack, you got to be good at what you do. You can work your ass off, you can put out a lot of content, but if you're not good at it, it's not going to resonate with people. Here's the, here's the good news. If you work your ass off, if you do it, it doesn't matter if you suck in the beginning, no one will care, No one's going to pay attention, and no one will remember if they come back in two years and you're good that, oh, I remember when they sucked, and if they do, they'll think it's great. But if you work your ass off, you'll probably get good. You'll probably get good. There's a reason I can, I can 
you could get me on a live thing with the Zello guys right now, and they'd ask me a question. And even if I really didn't know the answer, I could work through it because I've been doing it eight years. I've been working my ass off for eight years, so I've gotten very good at what I do. That's not ego because anybody that works their ass off at something for that long, you're going to get good at it or you're something wrong. You're maybe in the 2%. If you suck at something after eight years, you know, you probably should go do something else long ago. For instance, I cannot play the drums. I do not have the rhythm to play the drums. I know that. I could kill myself trying to learn to play drums. I don't have passion for it, so I'm not going to. But even if I really wanted to, um, I would probably get to a point and go, yeah, this sucks. I need to do something that I'm good at. Anyway, I hope that helps. It's probably not exactly the answer you were looking for, but it's the answer I always try to give you, the truth. Dovetailing nicely with that is an email that I got from Aaron. Aaron says, I spent the money going through some videos and articles at Micro's website for the MicroWorks Foundation. Below is a link to a pledge the recipients of the foundation's dollars have to sign. I thought you would appreciate it. It lines up perfectly with the values for your audience. So the MicroWorks Foundation helps people uh, get started in businesses and entrepreneurial activities and um, educational programs and, and, and job assistance and things like that, which I think is great. And for those who don't know, Micro has been one of the most outspoken. I'd call Micro like a C-list celebrity. Um, Kathy, Kathy, Kathy Griffith, uh, who I actually really like, the redheaded chick comedian, uh, used to have a show called My Life on the D-List. So uh, if she's a D-List celebrity, I'd say he's at least a C-List celebrity. And A-List is, you know, what's his name? I don't even know. The, the uh, Brad Pitt, right? Uh, Jennifer Aniston. These people are B-A-List celebrities. Uh, a B-List celebrity, still most people would know who they are, might recognize them. C-List, if you know the person, it's really cool. If you don't know the person, you probably don't care. And if somebody told you, you probably don't care. So, for instance, if you saw a, a B-list celebrity and you looked at him, you'd be like, I don't know him. And so he says, well, this is who they are and this is what they do. Oh, them. Oh, yeah, maybe you want to meet them, get their autograph, something like that. Unless you're like me, you just don't give a shit. Um, but a C-lister, you'd have to kind of know who they are to care, right? Um, that's what Mike is. But he's huge. And he's the kind of guy that's using social media to have more influence than A-listers with the people that listen to him. He's a really cool guy. And he's been tough on the college education system because not college has no value, but there's all these other things that need doing, and there are all these other ways to make a living, and there's all these other ways to sometimes make a great living that if you pursue those, you can be successful and telling people that you shouldn't do that is a disservice. That's how he feels. So <clears throat> there's one of these I'll take a little bit of an exception with, but I don't from the way he's coming at it, but I'll talk about it when I get there. But these are the sweat promises, the sweat pledge, uh, 12 things you have to pledge if you're going to get help by the Micro Foundation. One, I believe that I have won the greatest lottery of all time. I am alive. I walk on earth. I live in America. Above all things, I am grateful. I completely agree with that. I, I, I think you can even take I live in America out of it. Um, there's certain, certainly certain places you'd be really a lot worse off. But I would say I live in the first world, right? I mean, seriously, you should be grateful if you live in the first world and you have won the greatest lottery of all time. You're alive. 
Because now you have an opportunity. Even if you're in a shitty place, you have an opportunity to get out. Number two, I believe that I'm entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nothing more. I also understand that happiness and the pursuit of happiness are not the same thing. Ooh, freaking raw. That That's one of the biggest lessons that our young people should be taught. Like, you should have to know that to graduate second grade, and you should be retested on it every grade throughout school if we're going to have school. Right? If you can't de 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 determine the difference between having a right to the pursuit of happiness and the right to happiness, you are not a well-adjusted young person, let alone an adult. Hoorah. Number three, I believe there's no such thing as a bad job. I believe that all jobs are opportunities. It's up to me to make the best of them. I think there's a truth in that, depending on your point in professional development in your life. Um, there's a lot of jobs I wouldn't do right now. Do you know why? I don't have to. But if I lost everything, and for one reason or another, I couldn't use my entrepreneurial spirit in some way, then yes, I would do anything down to scrubbing a toilet just for who I might meet and what opportunities it might lead to. Because every job leads to meeting people, and meeting people leads to meeting other people, and that leads to opportunities. Number four, I do not follow my passion. I bring it with me. I believe that any job can be done with passion and enthusiasm. From the standpoint that he's coming from, I agree. If you're at a point in your life where you need an opportunity, you need that job, even if it's a job people consider bad jobs, and it's, I don't know, cleaning out sewer tunnels or something like that, and it pays a wage, and it gets you that opportunity, then, yeah, you bring your passion with it, and you see it as a stepping stone to something else. But you never put your passion, your true passion, in your life aside. If there's something that you believe in, whether it's you know like kind of a blue-collar thing or the ultimate white-collar thing or anything in between, you don't let go of it. You use these other opportunities as stepping stones to get there. So I'll take that one minor exception here, but I get where he's coming from with it. Number five, I deplore debt and do all I can to avoid it. I would rather live in a tent and eat beans than borrow money to pay for a lifestyle I can't afford. Completely agree, with a caveat. I have a mortgage on my house, and I don't care if you do. The, the, with the, the size purchase of a mortgage and the way that you can finance the money on it, you're actually a fool if you have the cash to not take out the mortgage anyway. You lose money by spending your cash now versus keeping it, even on a very low rate of return. Because if you can't do better than 2.5%, 3% with your money, you don't need to be investing. You should have it in a lockbox somewhere. All right? Um, but, you know, College debt, $80,000 worth of debt for a degree that gets you a starting job if you're lucky at $30,000. Bullshit. No. And that's more what he's talking about here. Or credit card debt on consumer goods and stuff like that. I completely agree. Six, I believe safety is my responsibility. I understand being in compliance does not necessarily mean I'm out of danger. You know, this actually makes me think of driving. And there's times where I'll have a right away, but I look at the other vehicle and something tells me they're not going to stop and I wait to see what happens instead of go. Because it doesn't matter that I'm right if I get hit. And that's the same type of thing on a, on, a, on a job floor or something like that. Well, if you're outside the yellow lines, you're in compliance. It doesn't mean nothing can happen. I, I like that one a lot. 
I believe the best way to distinguish myself at work is to show up early, stay late, and cheerfully volunteer for every crappy task there is. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Most of the time, yes. But there's a way to be strategic about that, too. Um, definitely showing up early and staying late. That definitely gets the attention of the people that you're working for. But sometimes I think what people need to understand is the person you work directly for may not have, this is for you employees, may not have a vested interest in you advancing. And the people that you actually need to impress with your ethic are actually usually one or two levels above your direct level of supervision. And that's important to understand. But you know what? Usually your boss, when you're in that entry-level position, goes home when the bell rings, and those people don't. That's how to really understand the strategy there. Okay. Number eight, I believe the most annoying sound in the world are the whining and complaining. I will never make them. If I'm unhappy in my work, I will either find a new job or find a way to be happy. And we're back to following our passion, aren't we? I'll tell you what. Whining and complaining are the most annoying sounds in my world. I don't care if it's my, my, my little nieces whining and complaining that they didn't get the treat they wanted or a social justice warrior whining because they've been presented with logic and, and can't come up with a thing or a grown man whining because his job's hard. If it wasn't hard, then it wouldn't pay money for someone to do it. I, I mean, seriously. Number nine, I believe that my education is my responsibility and absolutely critical to my success. I am resolved to learn as much as I can. From whatever source is available to me, I will never stop learning and understand that library cards are free. You know what else is usually free? Once you have Internet access, YouTube, Google, Wikipedia, and a plethora of college-level courses. Hoorah. Absolutely. Number ten. I believe that I am the product of my choices, not my circumstances. I will never blame anyone for my shortcomings or the challenges I face, and I will never accept credit for something I didn't do. Well, I mean, this sounds like things we need to be teaching. Again, we're, this is back in grade school we should be teaching kids this shit. I mean, do you understand when you hear these young people whining and bitching and needing a safe space that that one right there would end it all? I believe that I'm a product of my choices, not my circumstances. I will never blame anyone for my shortcomings or the challenges I face, and I will never accept credit for something I didn't do. How about, how about we add one thing to that? I got one to add to that tenant. I will never accept blame for something I didn't do. I will never accept blame for something I didn't do. I'll take the heat for one of my people. That's not what I'm talking about. You guys that are switched on know what I'm talking about. You know, this, this white male privilege bullshit because somebody kept slaves 200 years ago. I didn't do it. Not my fault. I'm not accepting the blame for it. I've got a responsibility in my life. So do you. Move on. Quit whining. Quit bitching. Number 11. I understand the world is not fair, and I'm okay with that. I do not resent the success of others. Yeah, I know when someone's going to crush it. When we're having a discussion and they're telling me what they want to do and we start talking about somebody else they've seen, like somebody that they've kind of like latched onto is like, and I'll say, well, I just talked to that person and they did really good. They did like, made like 200,000 last year. And that person says, good for them. That person's going to crush it. That person's going to crush it. 
But here's an example of a person that won't crush it. Back when my wife still had a job. And we weren't doing that great just yet, okay? Just to kind of put it, we're making okay money. But, I mean, we weren't blowing it up or nothing. And one day, I made us a couple of nice steaks on the grill, and as usual, we didn't finish it all. So she takes a piece of the steak and a little bit of baked potato and some roasted vegetables, puts it in a Tupperware thing, and takes it to work. And one of the nurses she works with says, well, Jack must be doing pretty good if you can eat like that, kind of in like a, a condescending way. That person will never be anything more than an hourly wage slave. If you resent the success of others, you will not succeed. And the world isn't fair. Not everybody gets what they should get when they're supposed to get it. But eventually you get it if you keep working for it. In the end, the world is both fair and unfair. The world is a meritocracy. Those who do the best and the most good eventually do prevail if they don't quit. That's the key. Because people will say, well, look at this person. They're a great person. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They work their ass off. And they're just, I mean, they have so little. Well, if they keep at it, and you got to be good, you got to be smart. If you're working really hard at scrubbing toilets, that will only ever pay so much. Okay? I mean, seriously, like, if your job is I go into uh, hotel rooms and scrub shitters after people shitting them and make beds and, and, and vacuum the floor, that is not a bad job, as we've already discussed. But if you're not working to figure out how to be the person if you're going to stay in that place that coordinates five other people to do it, and once you get there, if you're not working to figure out how you take over a whole division of that company, well then, you're, it doesn't matter how well you scrub that toilet. There's a standard of excellence for scrubbing toilets, and once it's been achieved, anything better is, just goes unnoticed. In fact, you spent more time, you didn't scrub enough toilets. So you have to be strategic what you're thinking. The world isn't fair, but yet in the end, it can be fair if you work hard enough to earn the right. Again, the world to me is a meritocracy. Number 12, I believe that all people are created equal. I also believe that all people make choices. Some choose to be lazy, some choose to sleep in. I choose to work my butt off. I agree with that from the angle it's coming, but I think there's something that we need to say and we need to be honest with people about. And if we're not, if we're not, then we're doing a disservice to people, especially our young people. All people are not created equal in all respects. All people are created equal to me in our basic rights. We're all equal in our basic rights. But I'm not equal to Michael Jordan as a basketball player. I'm not. I'm not equal to the guys that are on the cover of GQ magazine in the looks department. I'm not. Many people are not equal to me intellectually. And it's not just knowledge, but mental ability. Many people are smarter than me. And not just knowledge accumulation, but the ability to learn, the IQ, right? The intelligent quotient. Not everybody is, is, is inherently just as smart as each other. But we're all geniuses at something. We all have the potential to realize genius. We're all equal in that we have that potential. There are people that have musical talent. I do not. 
I don't. There are people that can sing. I think I have a good voice for what I do, but I cannot sing. Trust me, someday maybe I'll show you how bad it is. We are not all equal. Men are stronger than women in general. But Jack, I know this girl, and she, I don't care. I don't care. Whatever she does, tell me who has the world record for doing it. If it's a physical thing, it'll be a man. There'll never be a woman that holds the world record for the bench press. It won't be. I'm sorry. If there is, it's going to be a very big aberration from the norm. A statistical anomaly. Men are physically stronger than women when it comes to raw physical power. Women have a, a different type of toughness that lets them go through childbirth that I think men pale in comparison to. We are different. We are different. We are all different. And some women are stronger than some men physically. Not even just women that work out. There are some women that are naturally six foot tall, well built, you know, that, that toss hay bales around. And there's a five foot six inch guy out there she could smack the crap out of. Pick up by the neck and throw like a rag doll. Right? But in general, is what I meant by the other thing. But it, 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 see, that's another example of that. We're not all equal. We're not all equal in raw mental capacity. We're all not all equal in, in physical appearance. We're not all, we are equal in the rights we have as created beings. That is the equality that is sought out by the Constitution of the United States of America. Equality is to be based on your rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not equality and ability. If we try for equality and ability, we are heading deep down the road of socialism. The world of Harrison Bergeron is where we are headed with that. And that leads to nothing but misery and bloodshed and death. The final thing on this, on my honor, I hereby affirm the above statements to be accurate summation of my personal worldview. I promise to live by them. But if you don't think that, then you don't get the Micro Foundation's money. And see, I'm totally okay with that. I think he could have... See, this is easy, right? Because mostly I agree 100%. And where I have my varying differences, I have them because I'm looking at the bird's eye view instead of the macro context from which they're presented. Okay? But this could say things like, I believe that you should share all of the money you earn equally with everybody near you. It could be the complete antithesis of what I believe. As long as it's not from the government, and he's doing it himself, and he says, if you want to be part of what I'm doing, you want to be supported by it, you got to say you agree with this, well, that's okay. That's freedom. That's freedom, folks. And we are not teaching the people of this country freedom, which is why you can tell them something stupid, like this is the freest nation in the world, and they'll believe it because they don't even know what freedom is. I can't remember the exact way I saw this, but there is a couple, I think, in, in Minnesota or something like that. They put a wind turbine on their house. They fought it in court until the court said, well, you lose. So they can't. And it's not like a giant windmill. It's like a little spirally one that the neighbors didn't like. And they finally lost, and they said, okay, fine, well, we'll take it down since we fought it and lost they're going to jail for six months over it. If you're going to jail for six months because you put a wind turbine on your, your roof, you do not live in the freest nation in the world. It makes me want to smack the snot out of people when they talk about how free we are. But since we can't even define freedom anymore, 
We don't know what the hell it is, so when the TV says you're free, you go, oh, I must be free. No one is more enslaved than the person who falsely deems themselves to be free. I am not free enough in this nation, but the freedoms that I have I will use to create more. That is the attitude that we need to be straining in people. Now, you know why they don't want to do it. That's a disaster. Can you imagine if we just had, like, the next 20 million young people that were coming from, like, their teens into their 20s and 30s over the next 10, 15 years, ingrained with that one thought, I am not free enough, but I will use my freedom to create more freedom for myself. Ooh, dangerous. Because that's their formula. That's their formula. What? You confused? Haven't you heard me say this before? Whatever power you give to government, it will use to build more power for itself. So if you give it one power, it will use that one power to create two. It will use those two powers to create four. It will use those four powers to create eight. And no matter how much restriction you put upon it, it will use power to create more power. Freedom is power. It is up to us to turn that dynamic around and say, well, you give me this certain amount of freedom, I will use it to its maximum, and I will figure out every single way I can to work this system. And I will figure out ways when, when I violate what you say I'm not supposed to do, but it's, it's a human right that I should be able to do. I'll either be smart about it and you'll never know, or I'll figure out how to do it in a way that will make you look so stupid when you come down on me that you'll lose and more people will get that freedom. I will use every freedom I have to create more freedom. That's what I get out of this. But then I look at things a little differently because, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. Let's take another one. I'll be brief on this one. It says, Jack, would you talk about your thoughts and feelings regarding the alt-right movement, please, specifically their inflammatory rhetoric and how people might deal with it? Thanks, Nick. Nick, I don't give a shit, and you shouldn't either. Yeah, that's the short answer, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I feel that way. So... What we've got now with the alt-right is this group that's been made to be larger and more important than it is because the media has to explain Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not explained by the alt-right, but the same thing that explains the alt-right can explain Donald Trump. And, and, and that is, if you tell good, decent people for long enough that you're a racist, a misogynist, a sexist, a privileged white guy, and every other bad name you can think of, sooner or later you're going to get blowback. And a big part of Trump's success at the ballot box was blowback. I'm sick of hearing you tell me that I'm a privileged white male when I'm working my ass off and you're not doing shit. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of being called racist because I vote Republican. And some of those people that are thinking that are people like, well, you know, we adopted two, two Hispanic children or two black children, and I'm still being called a racist because I, I support this guy. And, and the blowback got to be extreme. Van Jones called it a white lash. It's not a white lash. It's, it's a hypocrisy lash. People are sick of hypocrites calling them what the hypocrites themselves are. And, and, and that's a big part. And that's part of where the alt-right comes from. So you have to understand that, first of all, it's not as big as it's made out to be. It's not the reason Donald Trump's going to be your next president. So it's just not that important. The next thing you need to understand is there's readers of things and there's members of things. There's 150,000 people listen to my show every day. 
But if I ask you guys to do something, maybe a thousand will do it, even if it's a reasonable thing to do. So just because you're looking at it doesn't mean that you're committed to it. So when you look at a site like Breitbart, which all of a sudden is like so, oh my God, no one really gave a shit, but now they do. Um, just like everybody that reads Breitbart is not part of the alt-right movement. So that, that breaks it down even further. Then it's been like made into this thing like, well, neo-Nazis and white nationalists. Okay, listen, these hate groups have been around for a lot longer and there's been something called the alt-right. And they might latch on to a movement because it seems to be gaining momentum. That doesn't make the movement them. This is like when people say, well, Donald Trump was endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan, right? He didn't even disavow them. Well, what he said was, I don't know anything about that. So, so maybe I'm not going to disavow my endorsement. Maybe I didn't get it. Maybe I don't give a shit about these people. But when groups like that see a guy like Trump being successful, they want to latch onto it and be part of it. So we showed those people or whatever. It's nonsense. And for all you know, with Trump, it was actually not even real Klansmen because there was a lot of that going on. So a lot of this should come to the alt-right. Alt-right may not even be alt-right. It's leftist propaganda to make people look bad. Please understand that. We've had things come out since the election, for instance, like people putting swastikas on doors and stuff to scare people, and it turns out there's like a leftist doing it to make the right look bad. So there's another like dilution of the dilution. Okay, now, what is the heart of the alt-right online? Bunch of young white kids that are sick of it, that do a lot of memes and stuff that look really racist and all, They don't give a damn about racism. They're not sexist. They're not racist. They're not misogynist. They're ti they're tired. You know what this is like? So at some point in, in, in modern American history, black people started calling themselves the N-word. And why did they do that? Why? They did it because it took away the power from the white people who had used that word for centuries on them as a derogatory term. And they made it such that they can say it and you can't. This isn't exactly as, as, as elegant, but it's the same thing. Fine, you want to call me a racist, here's something. They're trolls. They're mostly just trolls. They're doing this shit because they know people freak out about it. They're meaningless, irrelevant people. But Jack, there's these, these Nazis and they did a march. Okay, well those guys were doing that 25 years ago and they've been doing it 50 years ago, and they were doing it five years ago. They're not this movement. They're scumbag, racist pieces of shit. That's fine. Let them, and you know what? They have a right to say that shit, to march, to, to stand there, to make fools of themselves, to look like ignorant, I almost said it, Fs, that they are, right? They have every right to do that until they actually physically intimidate somebody or do something to somebody. They're just... Making noise. They're just making noise. But hey, crime. Oh, man. Ah. Policing the mind? Really? I mean, that's where it always ends up, right? In two years, mainstream media will never talk about these people again. Probably less. It's a big thing right now because, oh, they put this guy in and he worked for Bright, was the editor for Breitbart, and ugh, I don't care. You know, it's just stuff like, well, this guy wrote this article and it said that women should go back to being barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen. He has every right to believe that. 
As long as he doesn't have the power to set policy to make it happen, who gives a shit? Do you know how many people think that way? Why do you, are you married to him? No. Then don't marry him and don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. People think stupid shit all the time. I mean, seriously. Just, just look at some of the questions asked of college students. You got more to worry about than some idiot that wants to roll things back to 1925. He has no power to do that. When you go to a college campus, And you ask, are young adults in college getting that priceless education that's costing them $20,000 to $30,000 a year? Who did the United States fight in the Revolutionary War? And they can't answer that question. That's a bigger problem than some kid putting together a troll meme to see how many people will lose their effing minds. Don't worry about it. And anybody that brings it up, tell them, don't worry about it. If they want to worry about it, you tell them, you can worry about it. I worry about stuff that's in my sphere of influence, and that ain't. I got more important shit to do. I suggest you do the same. Let's take another one. Uh, I want to finish up with something we haven't talked about much. I talked about this a lot in, in the formative years of Survival Podcast. Very early on, I, I did a lot of information on GMO crops, and I probably should go ahead and do that again. Um, sometimes I think, you know, when I've covered a subject enough times, it, it's redundant to cover it again. Um, but then I realized, okay, well, if the last time you talked about it was four years ago, and you have people that stop listening and people that start listening all the time, then they may not have gone back and listened to that information. So there's a lot of things that make GMO crops dangerous. And I'm just going to open up with the first line Uh, that is false in this article, because the rest of it is pretty damn true. But it starts out with, this is the New York Times, and of course they would say this, the controversy over genetically modified crops has long focused on largely unsubstantiated fears that they're unsafe to eat. Well, it depends on how you define unsafe. If you define unsafe as you're going to eat and get sick now, then those would be unsubstantiated claims. If you define it as because the crops are modified so they can be sprayed with glyphosate, and glyphosate is a known carcinogen, and by eating them, you're eating and consuming a known carcinogen that you do not have to be eating, and you wouldn't be able to eat it if it wasn't for GMO crops because you wouldn't be able to spray the crop with the glyphosate without modifying the crop, then they're dangerous to eat. You see how that works. That's basic logic. See, that's a logical argument that no one can get around. No one can get around that argument because it's logically made. Should you eat glyphosate? Well, not really. It's probably better that you didn't. Oh, okay. Well, why are we eating glyphosate? Well, because they spray the crops with it because you can spray the weeds and the crops don't die. Well, why can't the crops die when they get sprayed with glyphosate? Well, they were modified to be tolerant of glyphosate. So the only reason we're eating the glyphosate, you see, this is, this is how you have a logical argument. You actually discuss facts, not bullshit. Okay, so we'll, we'll let that one go. I just had to read that because I'm going to read the whole article and... But here's, here's the bigger thing, and I've said this for a long time. It's not just that they create dangers, but they're, they're bad for the environment and they don't deliver. They don't work. Here you go. Now remember, I was saying this eight years ago. But an extensive examination by the New York Times indicates the debate has missed a more basic problem. Genetic modification in the United States and Canada has not accelerated increases in crop yields or led to an overall reduction in the use of chemical pesticides. So you might wonder, well, how can they get that right and get the danger thing wrong? Well, they get the danger thing wrong because it's a slow, dangerous thing. It doesn't make you sick right away, and there's lots of other things that make you sick, too. But you can look at yields. It's hard numbers. 
You can't lie about this. Well, you can, but you're going to get caught eventually, like now. The promise of genetic modification was twofold. By making crops immune to the effects of weed killers inherently resistant to many pests. See? <laughs> they would grow so robustly they would become indispensable to feeding the world's growing population while also requiring fewer applications of sprayed pesticides. Twenty years ago, Europe largely rejected genetic modification at the same time the United States and Canada were embracing it. Comparing results on the two continents using independent data as well as academic and industry research shows how technology has fallen short of the promise. And they have shown that basically it hasn't done jack diddly shit. Um, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. There's a link in the show notes. But that, that's the upshot of it. That when you actually look at the results... And you say, well, where are they doing comparable agriculture without GMOs? And say, well, what are the yields per acre? What are, well, you know, what is the impact of pests? What is the impact of weeds? Is it delivering as promised in return for this risk we're taking? And more on the risk in a second. And the answer is no. And, and, and people like myself, Way back when they had a little bit of gain and they were promising more, said, well, that won't last because it can't because everything adapts. And you'd say, well, how can you look forward and know that? You're not a geneticist. You're not an agricultural research scientist because everything adapts. Because if you're a student of history, you know that every time we do shit like this, whatever the, the annoying problem is adapts and overcomes it. Always. Always, especially when you go wholesale wide with a solution to a problem that's not a wholesale wide problem. When you use antibiotics to treat diseases, generally they work. When you start using massive amounts of antibiotics in the livestock industry as a preventative and you're using more antibiotics on livestock than you are on human beings, and you do that for years, eventually you end up with antibiotic-resistant pathogens that not only affect cattle, they affect people. And you ruin a perfectly good solution. I've said before, I don't hate Roundup. I don't like it, but I don't hate it. It has certain applications where it makes sense. Those are very limited spot applications, not widespread spraying of food that you're going to eat. But here's the bigger problem, and this is a problem that's true of conventional agriculture and GMO conventional agriculture. The real danger is the damage that we're doing to the planet, the earth, the soil. Every time you give a farmer, and I've seen it, and I've talked to enough farmers to know that it's true, even though they don't want to do it, they do it, and when they, when they make, whenever you give them an alternative, they confirm it with, oh, you're wasting time with that, or it just won't work, or this is the, I gotta do this this year, because I'm not gonna make my, 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 my payments on a farm if I don't, and stuff like that, which means I'll do whatever it takes, because it's what the life requires. Okay? When you give them something that says you don't have to pay as much attention to your soil, They don't pay as much attention to their soil. Now, we have some decent state agencies like NRCS out there saying, well, if you want to partake in these, these grants and things like that, then you have to at least plow a certain way or at certain times to avoid erosion. But that erosion is not the only thing that damages soil and, and turns it from soil to dirt. Dirt is dead, inert matter versus living ecosystems of soil. And when you give a farmer a tool that says, okay, well, if you spray this, apply this, and do this, then you can just crop it, crop it, crop it, crop it, crop it, and you don't have to see to the needs of the soil, well, that's what they're going to do. And when you incentivize that behavior, 
then that's what they're going to do. And when you get them engaged in that behavior, and the average farmer is 66 years old today, they can't even see a different way to do it. And the real problem we have with conventional agriculture is the damage we're doing to the soil. The number one export of the United States of America doesn't go to any country. It goes to the oceans, and it's our topsoil. We export more topsoil through water and wind than we export any other thing by tonnage. And it is the lifeblood of the nation. And the topsoil of the world is the lifeblood of every living thing on the planet. And the method to solve these problems is treating the soil differently. And no matter who you are, you can, you can get on board with that. That's why I like it. Because I am not a believer in anthropomorphic global warming. I think it's all a bunch of bullshit. Because there's all these other environmental problems we can all agree on, but this is the one they choose to run with. That's great, yeah. That When government chooses to run with something, in spite of all the other things, they could address the same problems. And that one thing is divisive, and the rest of them aren't. You know it's bullshit. All right? I'll just leave it at that. But people, when they hear me say about putting carbon in the soil, they're like, well, have you changed your mind on that? On what? Global warming? No. Well, why are you worried about carbon? Because carbon belongs in the soil. Carbon is the building block of life. The carbon cycle is important to every living being on the planet. That's why. And if we, if we want to fix our agricultural system and we want to fix our planet, then we need to be teaching people in farming and agriculture that they're soil farmers first. That if you farm the life in the soil, whatever you do will be better. If you're a rancher and you're grazing cattle, then you farm soil to grow grass. And you're, so you're first a soil farmer, and then a grass farmer, and then a cattle farmer. But we've taught a corn farmer that he's a corn farmer. He should first be a soil farmer. And we don't only grow corn. We rotate crops. This is not hard. This is, you know, the, the thing is that this is what everybody did until the industrial era. And if we could do it before the industrial era, imagine how we could do it in this period of time. If we actually took all this wonderful technology and tools and horsepower and machinery and said, we're going to do what we used to do a new way. When we, when we, when we harvest a crop, we're only going to harvest the, the part that needs to be harvested. We're going to slash everything else. And we're going to put it back into the soil. Instead of flat out tilling the whole field, we're just going to subsoil it in. We could be building soil everywhere and healthy soil makes healthy plants and healthy plants makes healthy people and healthy animals that eat those plants and people that eat those animals are healthy people. If, if you want to say this stuff isn't dangerous, at least understand it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And if you want to say that it's not unhealthy, really, look at the obesity rates in this country. And not just the rates, but the rates compared to 30 years ago. Look at the rates of diabetes in this country. And not just the rates. The rates compared to 30 years ago. And not the rates compared to, to France or Italy. The rates compared to right here. Look at, look at the health of a 15-year-old compared to the health of his parents when they were 15 years old. And you see all that you need to see. And it's not just GMOs. It's the whole damn 
thing. The good news is it doesn't have to be that way. People are figuring it out. And I think I have optimism even for the the mainstream agricultural apparatus that I'm seeing more and more indication that even the government agencies and things like that are, are realizing, oh, we got to ch- This isn't working. They can see the problem getting worse and worse and worse. And the hope is they'll start to change some practices. We'll see. Because on one hand, I have optimism. On the other hand, I remember reading about a guy that was cutting mining timbers for the mines in, in, uh, in, in Montana during those years. You know, this is back during the pioneering days and things like that. And he was talking about as they cut the trees, they could literally see the creeks drying up. But they still kept cutting the trees. That's where we are with modern agriculture today. We can see the trees dying, but we're still going to spray and conventionally plow the field. We can see the eventual result, a dying planet. And it doesn't have to happen. But how, and it it won't. At some point, self-preservation will kick in. But how far are we going to take it and how much damage will we do before we decide to fix it? Anyway, with that, we are wrapped up for the day. If you like this show and you want to help support us, please consider joining the Members Support Brigade. The Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade is a group of people who support this show at a higher level than just listening and sharing it. While that's important, your financial support helps a lot. And we are not PBS. It's not like, I'll give me $100 and I'll give you this tote bag that you would get for free if you went to a trade show so you can show off that you supported Nova, right? I don't do that. I provide a valuable product in return for your valuable currency. And that is a $50 a year product called the Member Support Brigade that will get you discounts to over 60 vendors. If you use two or three of them a year, it will probably put all the money right back in your pocket. And it comes down to if you decide that, hey, this show's just worth paying for, It's 18.3 cents an episode. So when you get done with the show, if you think, well, you know what? Jack's worth 20 cents an episode. Consider joining a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, along with first responders. All of you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences and do that before, not after you join. I'll send you the discount code. The other way to support us, and the easiest way, um, absolutely painless way is you probably buy stuff on Amazon from time to time. And especially this time of year when it's, you know, the holidays and it's Christmas and gift giving and stuff like that, you probably do it more than off, you know, usual. Well, if you'll just do this on your phone or your electronic device or your computer, instead of going amazon.com, put in tspaz.com, T S P A Z, tspaz.com. You'll go there. You'll see a link. You click on it, you'll end up on Amazon. Do your shopping. We get credit for your business. That's how easy it is to support the show. And that's been a tremendously good thing for us this year. And I appreciate all of you that do your shopping through TSPAS. But you know me. Again, I'm not PBS. This is not a charity. I think I should do something to earn that business, even if you don't particularly like every item I review. Just having more knowledge is important. So every day, uh, during the week anyway, I do a review of an Amazon item that I personally use or I've seen other people use and have good experience with. Today is the K&H Ultimate All-in-One Stock Tank De-Icer. Uh, this is a great little plastic Duma thicky. 
You plug it into an electrical outlet, you throw it in a stock tank, and it floats. And it keeps the thing from freezing. But here's what makes it even better. First of all, it's not expensive. Depending on the wattage and all, they're all like under 50 bucks. Okay? And I'll tell you what, if you've ever tried to break ice loose to get water for your animals, and it's frozen all the way to the bottom, you'd pay 50 bucks that minute right there for it not to be that way. Okay? But not only does it do that, it doesn't waste energy. So what I mean by that is, remember I talked about the Thermacube? Thermacube's a little device. <clears throat> it's like a plug, a splitter. You plug it in a wall. You can plug two things into it. But inside it, there's a little switch. And some of them are like on at 35, off at 45. So they come on when it's cold. Some are high temperature ones. They come on at like 100 and go off at 80 to maybe run a fan or something like that. And they're, they're cheap. They're 20, 30 bucks or 10 to, 10 to 30 bucks, depending on the options. And, you know, they just work. This basically has one of those built into it. And since it's a de-icer, it needs to be one range only, 35, 45. So you put it in your stock tank, <clears throat> you plug it in. Well, it's not going to be cold today. Well, you don't know when it's going to be cold. It's winter. It's going to be cold and not cold, cold and not cold. You just leave it in there. When the water temperature hits 35, it comes on, keeps it warm. The water temperature hits 45, it goes off. It doesn't come back on again until it's 35 again. So it just keeps it from freezing up, only when it needs to run. So it's efficient. And they make them in sizes from 250 watts up to 1,500 watts. I personally use the 250-watt here, but in my write-up, there's a chart you can look at, and you can look at your uh, your USDA zone, and you can look at your uh, your size of your, your stock tank, and it'll tell you what size to buy uh, for your needs. I like to use the lowest wattage possible because it uses less energy, so it costs less to, make, to run. The other reason I like to do that is I have two of them, and I put out two stock tanks once we get to freezing weather, but they're running on a single circuit. So if I had a 1,000 and a 1,000, right, that'd be 2,000 watts, pop goes the circuit, and it doesn't work at all. So I try to use the lightest ones I can, and if you have that issue, you may need to look at staging water in a couple different places so you can run them on separate circuits. So think about that. But you can find that at tspaz.com, and I'm working hard now uh, with it. By the end of the week, I should have a whole new way that tspaz is running where you can look up all the items that I've done by their, their types and their usages and things like that with a click of a mouse. But anyway, if you don't like the all-in-one stock tank, the ice, or if you don't care, if you already have a solution, whatever, still, if you're going to do some shopping on Amazon this week or this month or any time at all, go to tspaz.com first. Appreciate that a great deal. With that, let's get into the uh, song of the day. I was trying to pick out something kind of cool for you guys today, and uh, many of you know I am a parrot head. And if you don't know what a parrot head is, I, it's like Harley Davidson. I probably can't explain if you don't already understand, but it basically means I am a fan of Jimmy Buffett. And Jimmy Buffett has a lot of music um, that I think a lot of people that think they know Jimmy Buffett don't know Jimmy Buffett. And especially a lot of really, really soulful, meaningful, beautiful songs. And this is one of those. I like to read the lyrics before I play the song to you and talk a little bit about a few of them anyway. So it opens up, girl of a thousand faces from a long line of basket cases, daughter of a fortune teller, oh, the lovely Isabella. She's changing channels, staying on her toes. She's just changing channels as she goes. This place is full of beachhead sailors, fishermen, and old retailers. Simple lives are so deep-seated, and history always gets repeated. Some folks see a bird's-eye view. Others haven't got a clue. Some will go, and some will stay. 
It doesn't matter anyway. They are changing channels. Crazy girls and boys. They'll be changing channels. Changing toys. Survivors of tidal waves. Children of former slaves. Strange that they behave like it's another world. There's an island in the ocean where the people stay in motion. Somewhere on the old Gulf Stream. Do they live or did I dream? They were changing channels, waiting for their sails to fill. They were changing channels. Always will. And that song is deep. It, it does definitely tie into the African slave trade and the people that live in the Caribbean and, and all that are descendants of that. But it doesn't limit it to that. Beachhead sailors, fishermen, and old retailers. It's universal commonality. And people adapt or they fit in. They change channels or they stay in the current that they're in. That's really what this is about. And there's beauty in both. The day you decide to ride the current that you're in is when you figure out you're in the right current. So the beachhead sailor, the old retailer, the child of former slaves that lives on some beach and just doesn't want to go anywhere else, if they're happy, that's great. If not, change your channel. Whether it's changing channels on the TV, changing channels in the ocean, or changing channels in life. If you don't, you'll remain where you are. And the whole point of being willing to shift, adjust, and change is not for the purpose of always changing, but so you can find a place in life where you're truly contented and you don't want to anymore. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Some will go, some will stay. It doesn't matter any way they are. Changing channels. Crazy girls and boys, they'll be changing channels. Changing tones. Survivors of tidal waves, children of farmers' slaves. Strange how they all behave, like it's another world. There's an island in the ocean where the people stay in motion. Somewhere on the old Gulf Stream. I dream they were changing channels, waiting for the sails to build. They'll be changing channels, always will. They'll be changing channels, waiting for the sails to build. They'll be changing. Always will.